Father God, thank you for this time. And Lord, we know that we can chuckle and laugh a bit because we've all been there at times when life just has a hiccup. Lord, we have plans and thoughts and ideas and we think perhaps life is going to go a certain way or a morning is going to go a certain way. But things happen. We find ourselves in a position where we have to make some real honest decisions. And God, it could be as innocent as running late or it could be habitual sin that we just can't seem to get over. It may be hurt that's been done to us or um, we just keep hurting other people and can't figure out what in the world's going on. Lord, this morning as we continue our Armor of God series, we're going to be faced once again with the reality that there is a spiritual battle that's raging, and we are engaged in that battle one way or another, whether we are actively fighting in the battle for you or if we're actively fighting in the battle against you. Because even when we're aimlessly wandering, we're not living the way you've asked us to live. You've called us to live. So this morning, we invite you here. We just ask that you would be here, that you would use this time to encourage our souls, to nourish our spirits, allow us to leave here uh, being able to apply one or two things that we've learned or been reminded of, allowing us to faithfully follow you, Jesus, and to actively engage in the war that's around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So perhaps you've heard the expression, the pen is mightier than the sword. You, you, maybe you've, you've heard that, in, 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 whether it's on TV or perhaps uh, you have a parent or a grandparent that has reminded you of that truth over the years. But this was a phrase that came about around 1836 in a, a, a play that ends up having a poem in it. And it was written by a British author, Edward buller Lighton. L-Y-T-T-O-N. And this is the full phrase. True, this. Beneath the rule of men entirely great, the pen is mightier than the sword. He then compares to the pen as this enchanter's wand where the power leaves and goes and takes care of the enemy. It paralyzes the emperors that they're attacking as it strikes. The poem concludes this way, take the sword away, states can be saved without it. Well, Lytton coined the phrase and it became popular around the 1900s, but the wisdom of this is actually far older than just a couple hundred years ago. This teaching actually showed up in an Assyrian sage about seven uh, centuries before Christ. And he says this, the word is mightier than the sword. And it reminds me of an action series. I tend to like the genre of action uh, when I watch uh, different TV shows or movies. It's one of those really amazing things. It brings you into the situation room. You have the president, the vice president, the big round table, the decorated generals. You have the, the nerdy intelligence officers. You have all these people and there's this pecking order. And you're like, yeah, I got to see the table too. This is great. It's my leather recliner, but it's, I'm, I feel like I'm there, right? You know what I'm saying? And so you're in it, you're watching, and you see this angry general who's been messing around with this threat on a different continent. You're clearly involved in the middle of a conversation that started way before the series started. They bring you right into this moment where the general who's all decorated, who has lots of ability, says, oh, I have a plan, and and if the president just gives me this green light, it'll be over. It'll be done. It'll be over before it starts. And what happens is the nerdy 
intelligence officer who's a little more timid, but he's very, very familiar with the situation. He speaks up. And after hearing, we need to strike, we have missiles armed, just give us the word, he speaks up out of turn, out of rank, and says, it's the wrong call, sir. And the general is looking at him angrily. (laughs) The president is looking at him intrigued. He says, well, what is your suggestion? The officer is a good guy. He's intimate the situation. He goes on to explain that he thinks he might know the motives of the enemy, that he wants to reduce collateral damage, which is sure to include women and children, and perhaps this is a giant game of chess as opposed to an easy fix. So he goes on and presents his hunch, which is a nonviolent solution, and all of a sudden the tension is set. Well, the officer convinced the president to utilize his nonviolent hunch? Or will the general convince the president to use the missiles? Will the president take up the sword or the pen? What is the right tool for this battle? And the question uh, is wrestled again and again through all the scenes that follow, and that's why I get hooked every episode. In the letter we call the Ephesians, Paul concludes his entire letter by telling us that you and I are in a battle. We're in a war. And many of the same tensions that exist from the scene that I uh, just depicted really uh, exist here in our war, in our battle. Paul is concerned that Christians understand their life is a war, and the reality is if Paul were to visit us today here in the West, here in the American church, perhaps he would have a few questions for us. He would be a little concerned that you and I may misidentify who the enemy is. You and I may approach the battle all wrong. In fact, we may be using the wrong equipment. So Paul's battle instructions and wartime strategy are just as helpful today as they were in the first century. Ephesians uh, Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 18, we've read them a few times before. We're going to read them a few times more as the weeks go on. Finally, Christian, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, in light of everything I just said, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So as we focus in on one part of God's armor, which today is the shield of faith, A big idea comes from our text is this. You and I stand against our enemies by radically clinging to the God revealed to us in the gospel. You and I stand against our enemies by radically clinging to the God revealed to us in the gospel. 
So first, we need to properly identify the enemy. It's the first of three points today, and it asks the question, who are our enemies? See, properly identifying the enemy is crucial for the Christian. Paul has discussed our enemies throughout this letter, but it's here in this text today that he gives us details. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we're gonna look at the schemes of the enemy at the next point. But for this point, we wanna look at who is our enemy. Paul continues, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if it sounds at first glance that Paul is talking about this world that exists that we can't see, full of all kinds of beings, some good, some evil, and it sounds large and this kind of this hard to imagine, well, we're actually paying attention to what Paul is saying. He is reminding us of a reality that we can't quite see yet. There's a vastness to the reality beyond ours, and the text makes it clear there's lots of enemies there. So let's start with the devil, because Paul names him. The enemy here is the most reoccurring in Scripture, primarily in the New Testament, and even showing up as a character here and there. And though many think the Bible gives this really clear and accurate, crystal clear uh, picture of who he is, what he's up to, what he's all about, the reality is, is there's actually a lot of mystery around him. See, the word devil, it's really not a name, it's a title, and in the Greek, it means slanderer. In Hebrew, Satan is what we pronounce it, but it's Satan. Uh, he means adversary or accuser. These are titles, not names. Sometimes the biblical authors call him a beast, a god with lowercase g, a prince, a strong man, or even a dragon. In the book of Revelation, our last book in the Bible, it even talks about somehow he is behind the serpent found in the Garden of Eden. It might sound like a lot of information about him, but the reality is it might surprise you that the Bible talks about things like plants or food more than Satan. <laughs> this means that you and I can err in a couple of ways as a Christ follower when it comes to thinking about the devil. See, the Bible presents the devil as a powerful spiritual enemy, but it doesn't really care to focus on him. It's weird because we can err if we don't think about spiritual enemies often. And so we might believe that what we see is what we get. We might struggle with seeing the forest for the trees. We might believe that somehow the things that are going on around us are not connected to a spiritual realm. Or like we might say things like, well, I just struggle with some bad habits. Or I just have these things about me I wish I could change. Or it's, I've always been this way. And we dismiss the spiritual reality that because I am predisposed to sin, because I am born a sinner, I'm naturally bent away from God. That it's actually out of the overflow of my heart that my mouth speaks. I don't just have a few bad habits. There's something going on inside of me. And it's deeply spiritual. You and I can believe the lie that what we have here physically is what we have. And yet that's not what we see in scripture. We don't want to be so flippant with the idea that there's something bigger than the eye can see. You see, for the Christian who doesn't perceive any spiritual significance in the world around us, we are not aware that there's a spiritual evil that we partner with when we sin, when we rebel is an enemy that is literally walking around, prowling like a lion, looking for someone to devour. 
See, the Bible is clear and Paul is very explicit here that we have enemies. They want to pick us off and they're opposed to God. But I think sometimes in the West, we're just really content with what we see. And the reality is that I want to remind us as Christ followers that the God we worship even now is spirit. And that God's spirit actually dwells inside of us as Christians. And that the Bible is a story that's moving toward a future where the heavenly realm overlaps with earth again. And that you and I have already been placed in the heavenly realm with Christ as Christians. And in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual world, there are myriads of beings, many good and many bad. And we need to take these enemies seriously. However, the other side of the coin is just as big of a problem, right? If, if we're not careful, we can see the devil in everything, right? The devil broke my car. The devil made me lie. The devil put that person in power. Sometimes people get obsessed with the demonic. And it's evident when a disproportional amount of time, energy, thoughts, and words are spent on this topic, Sometimes, if we're honest, we spend more time talking about the power of the devil than the Bible does. And that's a difficult reality. It's a side where we can err if that's us. The devil is real and he is powerful, but man, he should never ever be the central focus for the Christian. See, that would be to elevate him too high and to grant him way more power than he has. Our passage today it's weird because Paul calmly and steadily tells us God gives us his armor. We call it the armor of Jared. No, it's the armor of God. It's his armor he gives us. And if you wear it by depending on him, even if the devil shoots flaming arrows at you, there's nothing to fear. It turns out that Christ followers who take the strength in the Lord, if that's indeed where our strength is found, can easily stand against the schemes of the devil. And there's nothing to fear. Now notice, Paul makes a very sharp distinction of who our enemies are and who they're not. Paul reminds us that our enemies in the battle are spiritual beings. They're not physical we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. We wrestle in the spiritual realm, which means me as a Christian can never see a person physical as the enemy. They, whoever the they are in our lives, are not the enemy. Paul doesn't leave room for any Christ follower to put another human being in the category of enemy. And it's a hard teaching it's a hard teaching to grapple with and, and teach, let alone believe. But here, I think, is what we need to understand. A big theme in the letter of Ephesians is the cosmic and glorious plan for God for all things. A plan for the fullness of time to unite things in Christ, things in heaven and earth. The overlapping of heaven and earth has already begun in Christ, and it starts with us who have been united with Christ. Unity is a big theme and as an image bearer, it's in the image of unity that brings us back to the Garden of Eden when heaven and earth were one, when humanity and God were in fellowship, to a time before humans started labeling some other people as others. In Christ, the division is being torn down and unity is being established again. 
And part of being the new humanity is not seeing image bearers as foes to be defeated. Part of being the new creation is living out a radical love, not just for people who think like me, act like me, vote like me. Even non-believers do that well. But for everyone. And I think it's important that we pause and we realize that when I say loving people radically does not mean that we see people who are obviously glorifying the sin nature, obviously sinning, waging war against God and saying, oh no, we're good, God loves you. He loves you where you're at. But the reality is, is if we disengage so far from people, we can't possibly bring them the good news of Jesus. We can't possibly tell them about Christ. You see, when I love people who are not walking with Jesus, It's not me saying your lifestyle, your beliefs, the way you act is okay. It's saying there's room for you at the table to hear about Jesus. I can love you and not condone your behavior at the same time. I can radically show you grace and mercy and pray for you and not say everything about you is perfectly fine. You see, we can look no further than Jesus to see this radical new way of being a human Jesus had a tax collector, which we had to be reminded of a tax collector. A Jewish man who worked for Rome, the oppressor, collecting taxes from the Jews and lining his own pocket while doing it. A traitor. That's who he was. He stole from his own people on behalf of Rome and what, who was the opposition. And then the other guy, oh yeah, they had a, a, a zealot, a freedom fighter, the very people who would try to kill the tax collectors. That sounds like a really fun youth group. Let's all get together and we'll just have these personalities. That we're gonna, we're, this is gonna be good. Who else can we have? Oh, a hothead, someone who shoots their mouth off. Okay, and a fisherman. You know, the uneducated people that need to get a real job. Jesus gathers to himself the most rejected people of his day. And he calls them great in the kingdom. But not because of their lifestyles, not because of what they did, but because of their faith in him. We love people not by condoning sin, but by pointing them to the freedom that Jesus offers. You see, people are not my enemy the deceiver who's deceived them is my enemy. It's crazy. The only sinless human being to ever walk this earth ate with and served sinners. When the authority structures of his day came to destroy him, he loved them. He honored their authority that they had to put him to death. See, there's not one human being that falls outside of the scope of Jesus' radical love and the love that you and I as Christ followers are called to have. And it makes us vastly different than the world around us. And it makes sense only because Jesus has freed us from the dark domain and the corrupt way of thinking of the world. So what do we make of the people who hate us, who deny God, or even according to Ephesians 2, follow the prince of darkness? the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience? What do we do as a church when we watch the Grammys or we read articles about the Grammys? What do we do with that when we see kids celebrating and being exposed to things like that? What do we do as, as Christ followers when we, when we see the world championing 
things that do not honor God. And some of us are old enough to remember how things used to be. What do we do with that? You see, at first I can, I can get angry. I think it's okay to get angry. I think being angry is not a sin. It's what I do in my anger that decides whether it's sinful or not. What do we, I think it's okay to, to try to communicate the right message. I think it's, I think it's okay to try to, to reach out and tell people this is not God honoring and we need to be mindful. <laughs> but when I think about it, <laughs> you see, I wasn't born into the church. I didn't, I didn't have the privileges that some of us have that we kind of grew up in faith and became a Christian when we were really young. And, and, and that's an amazing testimony that I wish I had. At times, See, I was old enough to remember times when I absolutely wanted nothing to do with God. I remember being blinded by the world and thinking that what God called evil was good and what God called good was evil and championing it, living in sin joyfully. I'm so thankful the church didn't consider me an enemy and they saw that I was deceived by the enemy. And because of that, I can have compassion on musicians that act like non-saved musicians. I can have compassion for the crowds that glorify what God calls evil because they don't know Jesus. And it's a shame that this is our culture and I pray for a revival, and I hope you do too. But I certainly can't make that individual my enemy. Because they're not. That political party is not my enemy. That kind of person is not my enemy. Whatever that fill in the blank is for you in your heart, that's not our enemy. Our enemy is the deceiver who has deceived. We don't rage against them because our battle is not flesh and blood. They have been blinded, they've been received, and when I say the they, I just simply mean anybody who's not walking with Jesus, who's alive in Christ, who has received Christ for their salvation. You see, Paul identifies enemies of the people of God. If we're gonna stand against them, we need to understand their schemes we need to understand their tactics. And wouldn't it just be nice to know how they're going to attack us before they do? Wouldn't it be amazing to know exactly what their game plan is? And man, we are in luck. We do. Our main point, number two, is we need to understand the schemes of the enemies. Paul has already cued us into the schemes. You see, he goes on this big rant in Ephesians 1 to 3, and it's all about Jesus bringing unity. He's going to resolve all things, and one day he's going to make everything good again, and he's going to just invade our space, and heaven and earth are going to meet. He's going to unify all things in Christ, which means what's the enemy trying desperately to do? To divide anything he can. You see, the master plan of God for everything is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. So the strategies and schemes of our enemies are to divide and separate all things. And this is where we get really creative in the teaching team. Instead of just bullet point number two, it has three micro points. We snuck them in on you. Here we go. The first scheme is to divide humans from God by enticing disobedience. Doesn't it feel good to sin? It's nothing new. We read it on the third page of our Bible. 
God says, you have all of this, enjoy it. There's one tree I don't want you to, to go by. I don't want you to eat. I don't want you to, listen, enjoy everything I've given you, but there are some rules, there are some, there are some boundaries that I have for you because I love you enough to give you boundaries. And what happens? Eve eats the fruit. Her husband, Adam, standing right next to her. He's like, that looks like a good idea. He grabs it. He eats. What happens? They realize they're naked. They had shame. They hear God walking. What do they do? They hide. Because the relationship between God and man has now have been separated. There's been division. There's been a wedge. You see, the enemy wants to divide humans from God. We see that most clearly in Genesis 3. It doesn't stop there, right? God says, what? He kicks him out of the garden. We, we learn he kicked him out of the garden. Listen, he closed the doors on the garden, put a, an angel with a flaming sword in front of it. Seems a bit crazy and extreme, but God's like, you don't understand. I've given you this, and you thought you knew better. You've lost it. There's separation. Paul, chapter 2 before our text today, he says this, and you Christians were dead in your trespasses and sins. And whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience. And then after our text in chapter four, he's gonna say this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated or separated from the life of God. You see, the enemy wants to put confusion, separation, and division in the God and human relationship by enticing rebellion against God. The enemy says, did God really say? And Eve gets confused and deceived, and we're like, dang, Eve, what's going on? But you and I, don't we deal with this the same way? Does God really want this for you and your family? Does God really see you in this? If God is so good, then how can he? This, this question is alive and well in our own hearts. And when we sin, when we willingly fall into temptation, as Christians, do we feel closer to God or farther? You see, the enemy wants to separate. The first scheme is to divide God and humans. The second scheme is the enemy is to divide human relationships. It doesn't take long. All of a sudden, you and God aren't feeling good. Things are going wrong. And what happens? It spills out to other people. We see it in Genesis 3. It's amazing. Adam's the husband of the year award. Here it goes. All of a sudden, God's asking questions. And he's like, well, the woman you gave me, Lord, she gave me fruit and made me do it. Husband of the year award. So what he says. The woman you gave me, Lord. Before long, they're fighting. God and man there's division, and then all of a sudden, between the marriage, there is division. And from that day on, we see clan versus clan. We see tribe versus tribe, nation versus nation. By sin, we are predisposed to seeking the good of our own group at the expense of the other group, and we call it good. It's not how it's supposed to be. That's why early in the letter, Paul writes this. Remember that you were at this time, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, not by your good works, not by church attendance, not by trying hard enough, by Jesus' blood. For he himself is our peace, not things, not other people. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that who? He might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's the cross that kills the hostility between man and God. The second scheme of the enemy is to divide human relationships. And this is why those of us who are in Christ are called to radically love people. Because love mends division. And that's why Paul, in this very letter, is going to talk about unity between racial relations, marriages, in the family. And he even goes on to talk about how servant-master's relationships should work. You see, as Christians, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation and created for good works that wherever we go, whatever sphere we operate in, home, work, neighborhood, we bring people together. But it's not through us. It's not through common interests. It's through Christ. Which means if what you and I are saying, doing, thinking, is not creating unity, but it's creating division, then perhaps we need to stop doing that thing. If our conversations that are not rooted in gospel issues, but rather about politics, or the bumper sticker on our cars, or our posts on social media, if they create division and they're not about gospel-centered things, Perhaps we ought to stop those behaviors. You see, it's better for us to keep opinions to ourselves if they divide because division is from the enemy, not from God. You and I do not want to be co-opted by his strategies. We are called to reconciliation and not division. The third scheme of the enemy is to cause division within the church. We need to understand what the church is We are the church, the people of Christ, the bride of Christ. The church is the proof that the gospel is real. The church is the evidence that God's master plan is actually working. It's in effect. Paul says in this chapter, uh, chapter three of the letter, he writes this, the calling, his calling was to bring to light for everyone what is the master plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We think about the church as a gathering place, as a people here on Sunday morning. And we think about us coming together, being filled. But this text blows my mind because it reveals to me, reveals to us, that we are actually just joining physically the worship service that's happening spiritually. That somehow, in this amazing goodness of God, he's like, oh yeah, you guys are gathering all over the world in service. It's amazing. Join us. (laughs) And that we are bearing witness not only to the world around us, 
But somehow we are showing all things God has created in the heavenly realms. We're somehow witnessing, testifying, joining them in worship. You see, the physical world meets the spiritual world. <laughs> it's amazing to think about. It's one thing when we transcend human divisions. It's one thing when we show the gospel is real. It's another thing that God lets us into his cosmic plan being in effect. That's why Paul writes so passionately in chapter four. He says this, Christians walk in a manner worthy of our calling. How do we do that? Not through trying hard enough, but with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Man, that sounds like the fruit of the spirit. The church is glorious. <laughs> She's beautiful. But not because we gather here together, but because we are the outworking and the proof of God's eternal plan. It's been set into motion, ultimately realized in Jesus. You see, God's plan is unity. The devil's plan is division. So when we see division, we need to know who's at work. When we see division, we must be agents of unity. So we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, showing the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm the wisdom and plan of God. So we've won there's one thing we've overlooked, though. It, it, these enemies of ours, they are spiritual. They're, they're, they're not physical enemies. We can't poke them with a stick. We can't build a brick-and-mortar building and be protected. So it's a spiritual battle, spiritual enemies, which means the armor that we need to put on is spiritual. It's not physical, all right? And so their last point, uh, as, as we begin to close here, is putting on the right armor. We need to put on the right armor because it is a spiritual battle. We're going to see in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Paul says that to take up the shield of faith allows us to extinguish those flaming darts of division. But how do we do that? Well, this is where Paul's metaphor actually helps us. Paul connects something less concrete, faith, with something more concrete, a shield. And let's take a moment to imagine what the first audience would have imagined, what they would have heard. So maybe you're picturing a, uh, something like this. This is where my brain goes, a shield. We have Captain America's shield. There he is, right there. It's amazing. Have you ever watched his movies? They say it's movie magic. I think it's real, right? He just, he throws the shield. What happens? 20 dudes go down. It comes back to me. He's like, that's what I thought. And we're all chanting, USA, USA, right? We do this. No, just me? Okay, well. Let's come over and watch a movie sometime. It's really crazy in my house, all right? It's awesome. It's the wrong kind of shield, though. You see, Captain America is a solo artist. His shield is a weapon. His shield can be used for all kinds of things. That's not what they would have thought. They would have thought about the Roman shield. Large, about the size of a door, made of wood. These shields were designed to be locked together on the battlefield, to make defensive walls and roofs, to stop the arrows being fired at them by the enemy archers. It's amazing. They made, they made this awesome little like, fortification in the middle of a field, middle of the battle. But eventually their opponents get smarter. They start dipping their arrows in oil and they let them on fire. They start shooting the arrows that are lit on fire onto these nice, giant, wooden shields. And what happens? 
Wood and fire equals bigger fire. You know, it only takes one man to forget that he is a soldier, to see the fire in front of him, to freak out. And what's he do? He moves. He runs. He tries to extinguish the flames. So what happens while he's doing that creates a nice little opening for what? The enemy spears. And this beautiful fortification that's designed to keep them safe and fight the battle has an opening that the enemy takes advantage of. So what they do? They started getting these giant pieces of leather soaking wet, sopping wet, wrapping it around their shields. What's it do? It makes the wood nice and wet, and yet the leather refortifies the shield. So now these fiery arrows come. It hits the leather that's soaked with water. The shield is soaking wet. What happens to the fiery darts? Extinguished. You see, they would have heard a Roman war tactic. They would have seen how easily it was to put out the flaming arrows because they had the right tool. So how does faith connect to this picture of a shield? And that's really what Paul is forcing us to ponder. Ephesians 4, 5, Paul says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Christians are united into one faith together, sharing in core beliefs and doctrines. And we don't come to understand the Christian faith by ourselves. It's all about community. If you and I are on the battlefield alone, we're going to get picked off by a crafting, deceitful scheme of false doctrine. It's just what we see again and again. A few verses later, Paul's going to say that God gives servants to the church, apostles, evangelists, pastors, others to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith. Why? So that we are not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by false doctrine. We need one another. And the image of those giant wooden shields connected in battle helps me see that. Once more, Ephesians 3, Paul writes, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love that Christ, of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, in the prayer for the Ephesians, Paul desires that Christ would indwell their lives through faith in Jesus. Strengthen them. Keep them on a firm foundation, especially during trials. That together with all the saints, that they might have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ and then be filled with the fullness of God, which spills out into the world around them. Throughout the letter to the Ephesians, faith is radical trust and openness to God, which allows Christ to indwell believers and unite us in a deeper understanding of his love. So Paul's encouragement here is that in all circumstances, you and I would take up the shield of faith together and deliberately cling to the God revealed in the gospel. That we would stand firm on the Lord so that the fiery arrows of the enemy are extinguished. They don't cause panic. They don't cause us to break rank. So in our final moments, we are left with some questions perhaps application in our own lives. 
How have you and I taken up God's shield, the shield of faith, and locked together with other believers, standing firm in radical openness to God that Christ might indwell us? I'm going to pause and look at the camera. If you're at home and you haven't been to church in a while because you got out of some bad habits or got out of some good habits and maybe you just haven't been back, we want you here. We want you to join us. We understand there's health reasons. There are things perhaps that you're just not here. But scripture's clear. We want you here. And, and God's word is that we don't want you by yourself doing church. We do church together. We'd love to see you. Come say hi next Sunday when we see you here. How are you united to other believers of the faith, a member of the body of Christ, which ultimately grows us to maturity in Christ? It's all tied together, and until every Christian begins to see the Christian life as a battle against spiritual enemies, we will continue to have casualties on the field. Until we see that we're in a war together, we will fly solo and be picked off by every flaming dart of the enemy. It's only when we stand in faith together that we're radically clinging to the God revealed in the gospel that Christ would further dwell in us and build us up to be the mature body he calls us to be. So Christian soldiers of Highland Community Church, let's put on the whole armor of God so that we are able to stand holding the high ground that we have been given. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider the truth in your word today, God, I pray that you would allow us to apply one or two things. Perhaps we are so convinced that our Captain America shield is just fine, that we can be a solo artist. God, that's not so. We need one another. God, perhaps we believe falsely that the enemy is a person or a people group or a thing and not the great deceiver, Satan, demons, our own sin nature. God, perhaps we're here this morning and we need to repent of sin or, or, or confess sin and ask for accountability. God, as you see fit, would you move in our hearts and minds and lives? And perhaps if we're home and we need to get back into the rhythm of fellowship with other believers, Lord, would you lay that on our hearts now and let us to move in obedience in the days ahead. God, today is a day that we can engage in this battle well. Allow us to take up the shield of faith, being rooted, standing firm, so that we can grow in maturity in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.